You're not standing, are you? That's in my notes. The story of Job is a story that never grows old to Bible students. And as the book that bears its name opens, we are introduced to one of the greatest men of all the East. A man of great wealth and a man of great substance. Job had 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen and 500 female donkeys. Job had seven sons and he had three daughters. He had a great household of servants. If we had a man like Job for our neighbor today, oh, we would be so jealous and we would be so envious of everything that Job had. But without going into a lot of detail, everything that Job had was taken away. If you remember the story, all of his livestock was either stolen or murdered. His servants were all either killed or kidnapped. His seven sons and three daughters were, were destroyed and killed when the house fell on them because of a great wind that came up. So this once proud, once wealthy man has been reduced to abject poverty. And it's happened without warning whatsoever. And that's not even the end of his suffering. Next we see that he's covered in boils. Filthy, nasty, slimy boils from the crown of his head to the sole of his foot. And he still retained his integrity. And he still retained his faith in God. And at one point in his trials, he said, The Lord giveth, and the Lord taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. That's in Job chapter 1 and verse 21. The very next verse is enlightening. It says, In all this, Job did not sin, nor did Job charge God foolishly. Even covered in boils. Job chapter 2 and verse 10 says, Job did not sin with his lips. But folks, the words of our text this morning are a cry that are wrung from the lips of Job by the hands of torturing pain. It's the cry. It is the wail of someone on the rack a medieval device of torture Job's agony is not just an agony of the body Job's agony is an agony of the mind and an agony of the heart and yet Job is not crying for ease But he's summing up his whole longing in one word. And that longing and that one word is God. Job is certain that if he can find God, 
If he can find God, nothing else is really going to matter. So he says in Job chapter 23 and verse 3, the text of our lesson this morning, Oh, that I knew where I might find Him. Oh, that I knew where I could find God, Job said. Folks, that's a sob and it's a prayer. And it's all rolled into one. Job's prayer is unique. And yet it is also in a profound way universal. Because Job's prayer is a prayer that is as old as man. It gives voice to a longing that's characteristic of mankind. In this prayer, we have a hunger that has been and a hunger that is the experience of the most cultured of people. And yet, it is nonetheless characteristic of the most backward and most primitive people that have ever lived. It is the voice of hunger and the thirst of all men. It is an intensely human longing and prayer. Do you remember when Paul went to the city of Athens? Dr. Luke records the events in Acts chapter 17. Athens of Paul's day was the intellectual capital of the world. And those Athenians were as religious as they were intellectual. Because as Paul toured the city, the great apostle was impressed by all the many altars that existed in the city of Athens. In fact, being impressed by all the altars in Athens, the American Standard Version, he said they were very religious people. But... As Paul toured the city of Athens, there was one altar, one shrine that Paul found particularly intriguing. It was an altar with the inscription to the unknown God. You see, these people of Athens were a very learned and very cultured people, and they had acquired a vast amount of knowledge and they'd learned many things. They'd made many discoveries, but there was one important discovery that the people of Athens had not made. They were very religious. And they were tortured by gnawing hungers and burning thirsts. But with all of their discoveries, with all of their knowledge, the Athenians had failed to find God. This longing for God, this desire that Job expressed when Job said, Oh, that I knew where I could find Him. This desire to find God, this longing to know where God is, belongs to the most enlightened and most backward people that ever walked the footstool of God. We've got this ancient Saint Joe expressing his desire to know where he might find God. 
And in that, he's doing and expressing the same thing David does in, in Psalms 42 and verse 1. Where David says, As the heart panteth after the water's brook, so panteth my soul after Thee, O God. My soul thirsteth after God, after the living God. When shall I come, he said, and appear before God? In that passage, David is longing for God just like the red deer heated in the chase is longing and thirsting after water. This thirst for God, this desire to know God, this longing to know where God is, belongs to the very best of men, and it also belongs to the very worst of men. Now, don't go away and misrepresent me, so I don't want you to misunderstand me. Not every man and woman on this earth today, and every man and every woman that has ever lived, is consciously eager to find God. There are countless souls today that have a desire to forget about God altogether. There are souls today, people today, that try every way on the top side of God's green earth they can think of to avoid God. There are people today that have a desire for God that ranks right up there with a the root canal. What they want has nothing to do with God. Their heart's desire is not focused on the God of heaven. They want a better car or a bigger income. Or they want more toys in their adult toy box. Or they want another drink. Or they might want more leisure time so they can travel and see the world. But they have no time and no desire for a higher commitment to the God of heaven. People might differ in what it is they desire, but people are all eager for something that they have not found. And what so many in our world today have not yet discovered is the things of life will not satisfy the deep longings of the soul of man. You remember over in Luke chapter 12, Jesus told of a farmer there. He sought to find a way to satisfy his restless soul. Oh, it had been a great year. He had had a bumper crop. His barns were filled to overflowing. And he looked at all of his treasures and he said, What will I do? I have no room to bestow all of my harvest. I know what I'll do, he said. I'll tear down my old barns. I'll build greater barns. And I'll say to my soul, Thou hast much goods laid up for many years. Take thine ease. Eat, drink, and be merry. But if you look in Luke chapter 12, God could find no better name for that man than fool. God said, Thou fool. This night thy soul shall be required of thee, and then whose will all these things be which thou possessest? Those hogs being slopped in the far country by the prodigal, they were no doubt contented hogs. They had no tormenting memories that were torturing them. 
They had no unrealized hopes and dreams to make them restless. But the young boy spreading the slop for those hogs, the boy that had left home, he couldn't live on that kind of fare. Because he could not be satisfied with anything less than the plenty that he remembered back in the Father's house. Conscious of it or not, write this down, it's on the final exam. Every man and woman on the top side of God's green earth today needs God in their life. Not only is every man and woman hungry for God, they need God. Do you ever hunger for bread? I do. The fact that I hunger for bread is indicative of the fact that my body needs bread. In spite of what my doctor says, my body needs bread, preferably hot and with butter. The fact that I thirst means that I need water. Lots of water. Preferably warm, filtered through coffee grounds. In the same way that my body hungers for bread and my body hungers for water, I have a hunger for God and that means that I need God. Every man and every woman needs God. I might have everything else in this life. I might have a Stable full of automobiles. I see these, you ever watch these house hunter shows? I see people, they're, they're, what's your priority in house? Well, I need a four car garage. I'd settle for one. It doesn't matter how many automobiles I might have. It doesn't matter what kind of a fine house I might live in. It doesn't matter how many closets full of clothes I might have. I can have everything else in this world, and yet if I miss God, life is a starved and futile affair for me. But if I have God in my life, life's going to be a thing of beauty and victory. There is simply no great living without God. Go back with me again to the book of Acts written by Dr. Luke. It's an account of a group of people who are vastly different from the norm. And what have these people in the book of Acts found that makes them tick? There are people that are tremendously alive because they have realized the purpose of Jesus. They've realized that Jesus came that they might have life. And they might have life abundantly. You see, those saints in that far off day were possessed by an eagerness to share. They went everywhere sharing the good news of Jesus Christ. There were some they went to that, shall we say, made a less than enthusiastic response. But those 
ancient saints had something. They had a good will. They had a zeal. They had a desire that nothing could kill. And they persisted. The love of those early Christians went to the high and the low, the great and the small, the rich and the poor. It went to all men. The love of those early saints put its arms around men on the throne and it put its arms around the slaves and the outcasts of society. Oh my goodness. I would to God that we today could find God the way those ancient saints and Christians of the first century found God. And I would to God we could possess the zeal, the enthusiasm, and the love for lost mankind that they did. They had a determined optimism. They saw the evils of their day. There's evil in our day. There's been evil in every day. They saw the evils of their day, but they were not frightened by them because they saw them through the power of God. They knew they were playing on the winning team. And they knew that they could not be discouraged. They were beaten. And beaten, they counted themselves worthy that they could suffer shame for their Lord. And with that passion, with that love, and with that zeal, those people were powerful. Because they were possessed of a power that was simply irresistible. Now here's the beautiful part. All of us can find God. Everybody can find Him. Not only do we long for God, not only do we need God, but everybody can find God. This book that we call the Bible is filled with stories of those who have gone looking for God And having gone looking for God, they found Him. When Job cried out and said, Oh, that I knew where I might find Him, God answered that prayer. And as the book goes on, Job came into the joy of an awareness of God. And the Bible tells us about people that found God. You remember the words of Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6? Isaiah says, I saw the Lord high and lifted up. When Isaiah saw the Lord high and lifted up, he caught a vision and a glimpse of God. And then what did he say? Woe is me, for I am undone. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, and mine eyes have seen the Lord, the God of hosts. In the presence of God, Isaiah realized his own unworthiness. In the presence of God, Isaiah realized his own imperfections. Zacchaeus went running down the street that day and he climbed up in a sycamore tree. And Jesus came walking by and he said, Zacchaeus, come down. I'm going home with you today. I'd love to know what was said and I have no idea what was said, but I know this. Acts 9, or Luke chapter 19 tells us Zacchaeus' life was never again the same. 
He said, Lord, half of everything I've got, I'm going to give to the poor. And if I've defrauded any man, if I've taken anything from any man unjustly, I'm going to restore it back to him four times what I took from him. And then Luke tells, Dr. Luke tells us, and he was a rich man. His life was changed because he met God. In Acts chapter 2, Peter's preaching there on Pentecost. In that, that audience assembled that day, there are those that no doubt were in that mob that said, crucify him. There were Roman soldiers there that probably helped take him before Pilate. There may have been over there sitting the same soldiers that drove the nails through his hands. I don't know who was there, but it was a vast audience. And Peter brought that sermon to a close. And he said, this same Jesus you've crucified, God has made both Lord and Christ. And they heard it, they were pricked in their hearts and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, what shall we do? Peter said, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ. For the remission of your sins. You'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And Dr. Luke goes on and tells us that 3,000 people were obedient to that that very day. They came face to face with Jesus Christ. They came face to face with God. They found God. And life for them was never the same. In Acts chapter 8, Philip brings an Ethiopian nobleman face to face with Jesus. They came to a certain water and he said, here's water, what hinders me to be baptized? Philip said, if you believe with all your heart, you may. I believe Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. They commanded the chariot to stand still. They went down in the water, both Philip and the eunuch. He baptized him. And then what happened? Well, they got back in the chariot and had a picnic lunch. That's not what the book of Acts says. It says, the Spirit of the Lord caught away Philip. The eunuch saw him no more. And that eunuch went on his way rejoicing. Life for him was never the same. And we can just go on and on and on. About Saul of Acts chapter 9 coming face to face with Jesus and Ananias the preacher coming to him and telling him what to do to be saved. Or in jail in Philippi at midnight, beaten and bloodied and sore and in pain, Paul and Silas singing praises to God. And the prison doors were open. And the jailer jumps, rushes in and says, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they spent the rest of the night preaching Jesus to him. And he and all of his were baptized right away, Dr. Luke tells us. Life was never the same. When we come face to face with God, life will never be the same. But here's the question. How is life for you this morning? Have you really found God? Is Jesus Christ really a part of your life? Is Jesus really the Lord and Master of all of your life? If Jesus Christ is not Lord and Master of all of your life. Now, wait for it. Jesus is not Lord and Master at all in your life. And we make Him Lord of our life by submitting our stubborn will to His will, by believing in Him with all of our heart, repenting of sin in our lives, confessing His name, and being buried in baptism for the remission of past sin, and then living life His kind of way. Now, maybe... You've done all that, but 
life for you hasn't been lived the way the Lord wants you to. And you need to come back home and say, I want Jesus to be Lord and Master of all of my life. And let brothers and sisters pray with you and for you. I don't know the needs of your life this morning, but this is an opportunity to make those needs known as we stand and while we sing. Amen.